It's good to be with you this morning. I um, am not going to be preaching from Mark 14. That's already been handled not that long ago. But I would like you to turn there for our Bible reading this morning as we begin, because I'd like to tie in what I'm going to do this morning with what has been going on over the last several weeks and months. So if you would stand with me, Mark chapter 14, we're going to begin at verse 53 and read down through verse 62. Mark 15, 50, or 14, 53 through 62. And they led Jesus away into the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we have in these brief words of Christ an indication of his authority, an indication that he will return. And it is for that return that we await even now and pray often, and perhaps not often enough, but often even so come Lord Jesus. And so as we think about your word today and your son this morning, May our minds be guided by your truth. And Lord, I pray that you will use me to fill in some gaps that may be apparent in all of our understandings. Perhaps some things that we just have not contemplated on the scale that we should. And Lord, that those things will lead us to be more dedicated to you. And that an understanding of these truths would even encourage some who may not know Christ to trust him. For he is high and exalted and to be glorified in the lives of all his people. And really, in the end, in the lives of all who will ever live. For he will show himself mighty, not only to save, but to judge. And so, Father, we would pray that it would be the salvation that can be had in Christ rather than the judgment and the justice that can be found in Christ. That would be the reality in every life of every person who's here today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 for our time together this morning. We'll look at several other passages, actually, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. It's um, sometimes a little difficult for me to preach on an irregular basis because I had been so used to preaching on a regular basis and been used to taking, sometimes people may have thought, belaboring month after month after month in passages of Scripture or books of Scripture. And so there is so much to get in. I, I promise we'll try to be out by two. Um, but I, I want to deal this morning with what I am calling the ignored departure 
We're going to be in the first 11 verses of the book of Acts, but I, before we get there, I want to kind of introduce this in another way. If I were to ask you, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer, it almost goes without saying that the Apostle Paul is the name that I would be given by the vast majority of people who are here even. Would it surprise you to know that Paul did not write the majority of the New Testament? The majority writer of the New Testament. Now, he wrote the most, the more, more books than anybody else, but not in sheer volume. A man called Luke wrote 27.5% of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote about 23.5% of the New Testament. Now, I can make the argument that Paul was the great influence in Luke's life, as far as the apostle went, so that kind of puts Paul's stamp a little bit on that as well. But it, it, for sheer volume, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author of Scripture. And it's interesting to me that Luke begins his gospel and he begins the book of Acts in a very similar fashion. I want to kind of point that out this morning, so I want to go back and read just the first few verses of Luke's gospel as we begin. Luke said, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And when you come to the end of Luke's gospel, and I want to read this because this is going to tie in with the book of Acts, we find these words. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was departed, parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now the book of Acts begins where Luke left off. It begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it also makes clear that what was started in the gospel is continuing in the book of Acts. These are the things that Christ began to do and so forth. And now he is talking about the things that Christ continues to do when you get to the book of Acts. So look with me, if you would, at the first 11 verses of Acts. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time, and I want to go ahead and warn you of this, because we're not going to get to verses 10 and 11 until very late in this, and we won't say a lot about that. So when I get there, don't think, oh my, we're just now getting to verses 10 and 11, and it's what time? Um, we won't say a lot about those two verses, but we're going to spend most of our time in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 1, though, just to get the context. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So he, what Luke does is he reminds Theophilus of the gospel, and he says, I wrote those things concerning everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he says, until the day in which he was taken up. So he references there the ascension. He's not talking about lifted up. He's talking about being taken up. So he mentions the ascension first in verse 2. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The book of Acts begins here quite literally, where the gospel of Luke left off. He begins this as he began his first writing, and he ends it, or or he begins it as he ended the other. And here we have an indication that the gospel emphasized what Jesus had done, and Acts emphasizes what Jesus is continuing to do. And though the book of Acts came to a close, it helps us to understand that what our Lord did among his earliest followers, and from that, what he is continuing to do even today, is what was being dealt with in Acts. Acts, the book closed, but Acts the works, what Christ is continuing to do is continuing to go on even now. Otherwise, none of us would have come to Christ. None of us would have come to faith in him. And so the book of Acts, in a sense, the canon closed, but the book of Acts or the the continuing work of Christ is ongoing, even in the day in which we live. Now, it's our intention to, in this message, deal primarily with the last three verses of what we read, but I want to give you an indication of what our Lord did just prior to his return to heaven to be seated at the right hand of his father and what Luke thought important as he sorted through these events. So the first thing you find here is that Luke seeks to affirm the resurrection. He wants us to understand that Christ did indeed arise. And so he talks about Jesus teaching the disciples. He talks about Jesus coming to the disciples. And in fact, He speaks of the fact that there were many, many appearances of Christ during those 40 days. He is affirming the resurrection of Christ. The apostles saw him many times in that 40-day time frame. And so the biblical writer stresses the proofs of his resurrection that are, in his word, infallible. Later, another biblical author would talk about as many as 500 people seeing the risen Christ all at one time. And so there were many infallible proofs of his resurrection, and he wants that to be made clear. He affirms the resurrection of Christ. This is something that is absolutely necessary. If you have no resurrection, and we're going to talk about this more in just a little bit, but if you have no resurrection, you have no salvation. Second, Luke stresses the instruction of Christ to the apostles during this time frame. He is in verse 1 referring to the things Jesus did and what he taught the disciples during the time, but but, uh, actually early on, but then also referring to the time between his resurrection and his ascension. Now, it's very interesting to me, if you go back in the gospel accounts, Jesus is constantly teaching the disciples. He wants them to understand some things. And yet, we find on the eve of Christ's crucifixion that the disciples still didn't really even understand the crucifixion. And they were stunned by his resurrection, even though he had spoken of it often. They are about to enter in upon the greatest task that they will ever do. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, 
one of his purposes in being here for that 40 day time frame is to instruct the disciples further. They needed information. They needed to be further grounded in the truth. And that, by the way, is just a reminder to me that you and I need to be further grounded all the time in the truth. We, we can't just think that we have arrived and we don't need to learn anything else. You know what you'll find if you think you've arrived, you'll eventually discover that you may have arrived, but you arrived at the wrong destination. No, we need to continue to learn. The disciples needed to continue to learn. They needed Christ to teach them. And then they would need the Holy Spirit following the ascension of Christ to lead them even, even further and to remind them of what Christ had taught and to teach them even more. And so Christ instructed the disciples. Third, Luke seeks to confirm the need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. And you see that very clearly when he says in verse 4, which you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so this is just a, a few moments before Christ is raised, that 40th day after his resurrection. Ten days from this time, the Holy Spirit would empower the apostles. And their need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit could not be made more clear here. And it's something that every one of us who ever preaches the Word of God needs to be reminded of before we ever step in the pulpit. It's something that you need to be reminded of every single day of your life, every time you open your mouth to try to witness for Christ or anything else that you do in the name of Christ, we need to understand that we must depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God or it will accomplish nothing. Because only the Spirit of God can take the Word of God and change a heart. Now there's a fourth thing that Luke emphasizes here. And that is that what is unknown and unknowable is never to thwart one's service for Christ. What is unknown and unknowable is never to thwart one's service for Christ. A few years ago, I met a young man who, uh, rightly so, he had this insatiable desire to understand as much about God as he possibly could. But I did discover over a period of time that he had one issue that really could get him in trouble. And that was that he could never be satisfied or it seemed that he could never be satisfied with any mystery about God. He wanted to understand everything so much that he, he struggled with mystery. And I had to remind him from time to time, look, there are things, no matter how intelligent one is, and no matter where we are, even after we're in heaven, we're going to be finite and God is still going to be infinite and there are things about God we won't understand even after we have been enlightened to the point that we're in heaven. And we do, don't we not? We preach things that, that are beyond our comprehension. We preach the Trinity. That God is three and yet one. I know what Scripture teaches, but I don't dare tell you that I understand that in its fullness. Nor do I understand eternity. I am a creature of time. The only way I know to even begin to express eternity is like it is expressed in the hymn Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years and when we were in school, we used to sing that, what, 10 million years? And you could say 10 billion years or 10 trillion years, and it really wouldn't make the difference of a pebble being tossed in the ocean. And I don't understand that. But it's true. And so Luke tells us about the return of Christ. He says, 
You don't know the day or the hour. That's in the Father's hands. And what are we left to do? We are left to serve the one who is going to return. We're left with that. And so they are to bear witness to him and we are to bear witness to him as well. Even though we too do not understand when he'll return. And when I was younger, when I was a teenager, there was a a fellow that was pretty popular, pretty well known, that uh, was in in a lot of uh, Baptist circles and so forth. And and uh, he he said 1983 is the date for Christ's return. And he went through all this stuff from from uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 about a generation being 40 years and the fig tree budding and all of these things. And so Christ had to come back. That was Israel returning to the land and Christ had to come back by 1983. Um, Either he was wrong or the scripture was wrong and I know who it was. And you do too. It's not for us to know. We're to simply be faithful as we await. That's key in our lives. Now, that's a quick run through of the first eight verses of this chapter, and we certainly have not dealt with them in any detail whatsoever. But I want you to look at verse nine, and let's read that again through verse 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, these are the last words of Christ to his to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, let me just say this. It is good and right that we hear much of the virgin birth of our Lord because that birth is necessary if we are to have one who is truly God and truly man in one person. It is good and right that we make much of the righteous, perfect life of our Lord because it is his righteous, perfect life. That is what theologians refer to as his active obedience that provides the righteousness that is imputed to believers when they trust Christ. It is good and right that we make much of the death of Christ because it is this, what theologians again call his passive obedience, that it is through that work that the price is paid for our redemption. And certainly it's good and right that we make much of Jesus' resurrection For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, and 17, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It is vital, it is important that we emphasize the virgin birth, the perfect life, the vicarious sacrifice, the bodily resurrection of our Lord. And all good churches through the ages have done that. But what about his ascension? I would ask for a show of hands, and I won't do that actually, but I would ask for a show of hands almost. How many of you ever heard a message that was on just the ascension of Christ? My guess, it's few and far between. It's kind of ignored as though it's not really all that important. Little has been said about this wondrous and I think vital aspect of the ministry of Christ to his people. And so in light of the last several weeks of going through the end of Mark, when much has been proclaimed concerning the trials, the death and the resurrection of our Lord and I I don't have a clue where Damon's actually going when he finishes Mark, but at risk of stepping on something he might have done, I want to deal with the ascension. Because it's really quite vital to the believer. 
And I want to fill some of this out. So we're going to do a little bit of a, of a study almost on this. And, and I want to make application where I can. But I, I want us to be firm on why the ascension was so important. And so consider first, we're going to, we're going to actually do this with the glorification of Christ and then the ministries of Christ that, that are a result of or that are tied in with his ascension. I want to begin with the glorification of Christ. Toward the end of his earthly life, the Lord anticipated the day when he would come in his glory. In Matthew 25, 31, we read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when he comes, when the Son of Man comes, Christ is anticipating that already, and he hasn't really even given himself in, in sacrifice as of yet. But the anticipation is there. We get an indication of the glory of Christ when we understand a little more about him in general. For example, we read in John chapter five, 1, verses 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Apostle Paul spoke of the deity of Christ and the glory of Christ as the creator when he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And here in Acts 1, the Lord instructs his apostles, reminds them of their task and the absolute necessity of the empowering of the Spirit of God to fulfill that task. And then he is taken up from them in one of the most glorious sights that anyone has ever had the privilege to witness. The ascension itself was glorious. It manifested the glory of Christ. We'll say more about that in just a little bit, but I want to express a fuller view of his ascension and his glory in that ascension, beginning with this. In the ascension, we have the prayer of Jesus answered. By the way, since Jesus was God in human flesh, and since he never asked anything amiss that James spoke of that we often do in James 4.3, we should realize that every prayer he ever prayed was answered by the Father. Even his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me was answered for its legitimate human desire was, was overcome in the following line of the prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ always prayed in submission to the will of the Father. By the way, he set an example for us in that. And, and I would just ask, I would ask you to look at your own heart, your own mind. Think about this. Do you and I, do we always pray in submission to the will of the Father? Or do we sometimes, as James references, ask amiss? We ask it to, to indulge ourselves. Christ never prayed a prayer like that. He prayed every prayer that he ever prayed in submission to the will of God the Father. I heard several years ago a man say, that we ought never pray, thy will be done. And I almost fell off the seat where I was sitting. Thy will be done is the essence of prayer. We pray in submission to the Father. 
and Christ prayed in submission to the Father. So what prayer in particular are we referring to when we say that the ascension is an answer to Jesus' prayer? Well, look if you would at John chapter 17. John 17. Truly the Lord's Prayer. Beginning in the middle of verse 1, when he starts to pray, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. As Jesus ascends to the Father, he ascends to receive the glory that he had with the Father before he came to earth. He ascends to receive the glory that he had with the Father when the earth was created, and yes, even prior to that creation. The prayer of John 17 is answered in the ascension. And here's an interesting thing to think about just very briefly. God the Son, in his omnipresence, in some ways was in heaven with the Father all the time. But God the Son in the incarnate man, Jesus, had never been to heaven. So he is praying that the glory that he had before the incarnation would be reestablished for him. He laid aside his glory. He veiled it in human flesh. Transfiguration in, in our modern parlance is is Christ partially uncloaks His glory. And I don't think fully uncloaked His glory because had He done so, the disciples would have died. Peter, James, and John would have died on that mountain just like Moses would have died if he would have seen the fullness of God's glory. And just like you and I would die if we were to ever see the fullness of God's glory, even in a salvation state before we are glorified. And so Christ ascends in his request to the Father that he be reestablished to the glory that was his before he became the incarnate Son would be reestablished. And it was. Not only do we have the prayer Jesus answered in the ascension, but we also have the name of Jesus exalted. Though the Apostle Paul doesn't specifically mention the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in his great treatise on humility and exaltation that uses Christ as its illustration in Philippians 2, we need to understand that the ascension does play a role there in that exaltation. Here's this most wonderful text concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is Jesus exalted? Well, his exaltation by the Father, it says here, is because of his death on the cross. That is because of his humble obedience to the point of death. His willing sacrifice for sinful men and women so that if they would trust Him, they could know salvation. But that doesn't answer the how question. That's the... That, that, that's another question. 
But a part of the answer to this question, this how question, is the ascension. He is brought up to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted. He alone can sit in that place. He alone is worthy. Within this particular context, the primary answer to the how question is that the Father gives him the name that is above every name, that is, that Jesus is Lord. But he does so as Christ ascends and is seated at his right hand. The hand of authority, the hand of power, the hand of blessing. So Christ is taken up and received by the Father and exalted by the Father and given the name that is above every name so that at this name every one of us should bow. That's Christ. And the ascension is part of His exaltation. So Jesus' answer to His previous prayer is involved in the ascension, that he is glorified. His exaltation is manifested in the ascension. But notice, too, that through the ascension, we see the deity of Christ affirmed. And I love this one. Not that the others aren't good, but for some reason, as, as I was thinking through this and, and dealing with this the last several days, this one really had a great impact on me. I want you to look carefully at verse 9. Look very carefully at verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. And notice these next few words. And a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud received him out of their sight. It seems from the text that as Jesus began to rise from earth, a cloud suddenly appeared from heaven. A cloud that would envelop the Lord Jesus and take him into heaven, into the presence of the Father. Is it any wonder that the disciples looked up and were gazing into heaven when this happened, by the way? Would any of us have done otherwise? How many of us turn our head toward the skies when we see lightning or hear a peal of thunder? Does not a clear star-filled night cause you to turn your eyes toward the heavens? Do you not turn your attention to the sky when you hear the sound of a low-flying jet or a helicopter? This morning... We had some geese come over the house and almost took the top off the house. And I'm looking, you know, I, I was walking out, putting something in the car about that time. I'm seeing the shadow and I'm trying to get around to see these, these geese come over. How much more the disciples when the cloud comes down from heaven to escort our Lord into the presence of the Father? It's not exactly like this is an everyday thing. Seeing a starry night can be a, a fairly routine thing, and yet we, we look, we observe. Seeing a low-flying jet or seeing a helicopter is not an unusual sight, but we look nonetheless. Jesus is taken up from them. A cloud comes down from heaven and receives Him, and He goes up into the presence of the Father in the cloud. And it leads me to ask, what was this cloud? What was this cloud? Was it a normal cloud? I mean, was it a cirrus cloud or a cumulus cloud or some other kind of cloud? And I would say no, and a thousand times no. It's not that kind of cloud at all. It was no ordinary cloud. This was the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God. 
Several of the commentators actually mentioned this. It's the cloud that appeared on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We read there on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. He went up into the smoke, into the cloud. The presence of God had descended on that mountain. Now, what was the response of the people? We read of their response in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. And by the way, this is after the voice of God had actually given the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. They were indeed written in stone by the hand of God, but before that even, God had spoken them so the people could hear. What was their response? It says, now when the people, or all the people, saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And by the way, that was a very, very appropriate response. God was not displeased with that response at all. Moses, you go talk to God. Let Him tell you what we need to do because we are fearful. And it's difficult to imagine what it would have been like to have been one of the Israelites, when that smoke, that cloud came down on that mountain, the mountain trembled and there were lightnings and thunderings and then the voice of God Himself speaks. Um, I probably shouldn't do this, but at risk of being stoned later, I'm going to. When you hear the voice of God, speak to you personally, the response should be fear. And a lot of what I hear today when people say God is speaking to me personally is unaccompanied by fear. These people heard the voice of God and they said, Moses, you go talk to God and tell us what God says because we're afraid. And that was right. God on the mountain caused great fear among the people. We've lost this sense of fear in the presence of a holy God, have we not? Have we forgotten that we too are sinners and that nothing unholy can enter His presence? Have we forgotten that we can enter His presence only because of the blessed forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus whose righteousness is placed upon us when we come to Him in faith? Surely the cloud descending upon Mount Sinai would have come to the minds of the disciples as they stood and watched the Lord ascend. But there are a couple of other scenes that might have come to their minds too. Following the giving of the law and a terrible rebellion of the people, God gave instructions on the building of the tabernacle. We read that Moses and the people followed the instructions of the Lord and that the tabernacle was completed. But what happened once it was completed? What happened when this this temporary structure was finished. We read late in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud. Could it be the same cloud that descended on Mount Sinai? The smoke, the cloud that descended there? Cloud that represents the glory of God or that veils the glory of God from the sight of the people? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, by the way, Moses, who had been called up on the mountain, 
Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses himself could not go in. Impossible though it may be to try to put yourself in the wilderness with the children of Israel. The tabernacle has just been finished and you watch as the glory of God descends upon it in the cloud. How incredible it was that Moses himself couldn't even enter while God's glory rested in that place. There's one other time when the cloud of God that veiled his glory descends in the Old Testament, and that's in 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11. And here it's when the temple is just finished. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They had to vacate it. They couldn't go in because God's glory was there. The cloud came down filling the house of the Lord, the temple. Why the cloud? Because it veiled the glory of God from the view of the people. Keep in mind that God told Moses that if he showed him his full glory, that Moses or any other man or woman for that matter would die. So God veiled his glory in the cloud. The cloud that veiled God's glory from full view kept the people alive. Now, return your thoughts to the ascension of Christ. Jesus had prayed that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had had with the Father prior to the incarnation. Jesus, as Jesus, the incarnate one, is taken up into heaven. He is taken up, how? In a cloud. Could it be that the cloud that came down, came down to veil the glory of Christ from the full view of the disciples who would have died had they seen the fullness of his glory? And I think the answer to that is yes. God is reminding us of the deity of Jesus Christ because the cloud of his Shekinah glory comes down and escorts him into heaven. And it is not as though Christ is some way unworthy. He is worthy of this. He is worthy. We know that Though the glory of Christ was manifested on the Mount of Transfiguration, that his glory was still somewhat veiled. Such is the case here. The Father was answering Jesus' prayer and the cloud of glory veils the fullness of Jesus' divine glory from the vision, from the gazing eyes of the apostles. We need to see Jesus high and lifted up and the account of his ascension aids us to do that. In his ascension, we see his prayer answered. We see him exalted. We see his deity affirmed as his glory is veiled in the cloud. And finally, let us get a glimpse into heaven where we see the worship of Jesus that is ongoing. And here I simply want to read for you Revelation 5. What's going on now? Well, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in verse 1 of chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, John says, And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look at it. What was John's response? So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, 
each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Jesus' prayer to be glorified was indeed answered. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. In the ascension itself, the cloud associated with the glory of God received Him into heaven where He is now worshipped as the Lamb who was slain for the sin of man. This is the glorious Christ, the glorious Redeemer who we love and serve. This is the one who is worthy of all our praise. Now that's the glorification of Christ in the ascension. I want to turn your attention quickly to the ministries of Christ in heaven today. What's he doing? Scripture gives us some clear indication of that. The ascension makes this possible. Jesus ministered to his disciples and to many others during his earthly life. But just because he's been glorified in the presence of the Father does not mean that he is not still ministering to us today. What is Jesus doing as the ascended Lord of all? Let me take you to three different places. First, we see him ruling. We see him ruling. In giving what we know as the Great Commission, Jesus began that by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is ruling. He has all authority and all the authority necessary for the church to complete its task of making disciples has been given to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he is ruling. Even today, yes, he will rule forever, but even now, in abstention from heaven, he rules. And if nothing else, and I think it goes much beyond this, if nothing else within the context of Matthew 28, he is ruling in such a way that every person who has ever been given to him by his Father in heaven will receive him. Not a single one will be left out. Not only is he ruling, we also see him preparing. It's a passage that brings great comfort to our hearts. It was intended to bring great comfort to the hearts of the disciples when it was given. John 14, 1 to 3. If you look back in chapter 13, Jesus has just told them that he was going to be crucified. He uh, speaks of his betrayer, he speaks of Peter's denial. And the disciples are troubled. They're discouraged. And so he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you to myself that where I am there ye may be also. What an encouragement. And what an encouragement it is to think that Christ is preparing a place that is perfectly designed for you and me, His people. We, uh, all of you who are, have talked to us very much since we've been here, and that's forever, um, 
we, um, you, some of you at least know that we, we put an addition on the house where we are. We're taking care of my dad there and, and we needed some more room. I needed an office and we needed to have some separation and all so that things would be a little easier. And, and so we put an addition on the house and, and we designed it or actually a, a cousin of mine did the architectural work and and then we went out and we had to decide what lights we wanted and all that kind of stuff. Some of you built houses and you know how that works. Well, guess what? There are things that I wish we would have done differently. One in particular comes to mind real quick and my wife could probably tell you exactly and instantly what that one thing is. And it's not a big thing, but it would have just been better. That won't happen in the place that Christ is preparing for us. It'll be perfect. There will not be one thing that you desire that you will not have. Some of you are already thinking about the bass boat you're gonna get. I, I'm not really talking about that kind of stuff. Your greatest desire will be God and he will be present with you constantly. And everything about the new creation will be designed in such a way that it'll be a perfect place for you. What is Christ doing? He's preparing. He's preparing a place for us. And then what else is Christ doing? Well, let me give you one more. He is advocating. He is advocating. Several years ago, I heard a man, I think it was Warren Wiersbe, say this, if you can only master one book in the Bible, make it Romans. And if you can only master one chapter in the Bible, make it Romans chapter 8. On another occasion, I heard a well-known preacher say, if you can read Romans 8 and still believe you can lose your salvation, you're reading the white spaces, not the words. Which I thought said it pretty well. And this chapter, Romans 8, is literally full of encouragement for every person who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Its beginning words are tremendously assuring when it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no condemnation. We're also told that the Holy Spirit advocates for us when the apostle says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness or our infirmities, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's a current ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not only does He indwell us, empower us, teach us, seal us for, for what is to come, but He intercedes on our behalf. But also the Lord Jesus, the exalted Son who sits at the Father's right hand, intercedes for those who come to Him in faith. Paul closes out this chapter and he ends with the words that cry out to us that we are secure in Christ. And for the sake of context, I really would like to read from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Because these are such comforting and encouraging words to us, and they remind us of what Christ is doing. We read beginning in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We could stop right there and... That ought to be as comforting as anything that you could ever see anywhere. If God is for you, who can be against you? Well, the whole world can be against you, but it really doesn't matter because God's going to win. He goes on, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If God the Father gave us Jesus Christ, the greatest thing He could ever give us, how could we think he's ever going to withhold anything that's truly for our good? Verse 33, 
who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, the answer to that could be everybody, including Satan himself. But notice what the response to that is. It is God who justifies. God's already justified us. What can he accuse us of, even if it's Satan himself, that is going to um, cost us before the God who has already justified us? And then note these words. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And Paul builds here a, a, a view of a courtroom where God the Father is the judge, Jesus Christ is our lawyer advocating for us before the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life Angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from Him. But notice what it says there in verse 34. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us. Now what does He plead? Does He plead our righteousness? No, He pleads His own righteousness. Does he plead his our goodness? No, he pleads his own goodness. Because we're in him if we know Christ. And so he pleads his own righteousness. And he pleads before the Father. He is our advocate. This is what Christ does for us. And by the way, I really think this is true. If Christ did not plead for us, we would lose what we have. But he does plead for us. And he always will. And so we are secure in him. What did he ascend to do? Well, he ascended to rule. He ascended to prepare. And he, send, he ascended to advocate. Now, to verses 10 and 11. I told you we wouldn't be on these long. So in the next hour and a half, we should be done. Um, no, I'm, all of you know I'm kidding. In verses 10 and 11, we, give, we see the return of Christ from heaven. We're not going to say much about that. But that's what is clearly indicated in these verses. They looked up steadily toward heaven as he went up. And we understand why. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples were gazing. I'm sure that there, there was a mixture of being thrilled and understanding something of the permanency of this in their lifetime. And so there may have been some sadness mixed in. But this last two verses of this section tell us Jesus will return. Our Lord will return in the cloud, and when He comes, He will set all things right. Do you have that hope in you? Do you have that hope in you? Do you know the One who gave Himself a ransom for sinners? Can you pray, even so come, Lord Jesus? If not, turn from your sin and trust the sinless Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And if you have this hope in you, then purify yourself even as He is pure. Let us in purity and love serve and worship our ascended Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we must do. But we will not do it unless we see Him exalted. And the whole point today is to try to encourage us to see Him exalted, understand His ministry to us even now, so that we will bow before Him in worship and we will go forth to serve Him, for He is glorious. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the ascension. Something that sometimes gets a little lost in our thinking. But that you raised Christ up. That he lives forever. And that he intercedes on our behalf moment by moment so that we are kept safe. Father, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to each of our hearts. Encourage the one who is downtrodden. Lift up, Father, that one who is struggling. May we see Christ exalted and may we see that he ministers for us even now and that he prepares a place that is beyond our imagination, a place that is perfect where we will dwell forever with him. And Lord, may others be encouraged to come in as they see their own sinfulness and see their need for salvation and realize that Christ, the Lord who ascended to the right hand of his father is the one who redeems, the one who saves, the one who paid the penalty of sin so that when we repent and trust in him, we can have eternal life. So, Father, we ask that you would use your word to draw men and women and young people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you will direct our paths from day to day and that we will truly live in a way that proves him from our own lives to be worthy. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.